Section 36 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 34. Letters 1894. A Winter in New York. Business Failure. End of the Machine. The beginning of the new year found Mark Twain sailing buoyantly on a tide of optimism. He believed that with H. H. Rogers as his financial pilot, he could weather safely any storm or stress. He could divert himself, or rest, or work, and consider his business affairs with interest and amusement, instead of with haggard anxiety. He ran over to Hartford to see an amateur play, to Boston to give a charity reading, to Fairhaven to open the library which Mr. Rogers had established there. He attended gay dinners, receptions, and late studio parties, acquiring the name of the Belle of New York. In the letters that follow, we get the echo of some of these things. The Mrs. Rice mentioned in the next brief letter was the wife of Dr. Clarence C. Rice, who had introduced H. H. Rogers to Mark Twain. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris, January 12, 94. Livy, darling, I came down from Hartford yesterday with Kipling, and he and Hutton and I had the small smoking compartment to ourselves and found him at last at his ease and not shy. He was very pleasant company indeed. He is to be in the city a week, and I wish I could invite him to dinner, but it won't do. I should be interrupted by business, of course. The construction of a contract that will suit Page's lawyer, not Page, turns out to be very difficult. He is embarrassed by earlier advice to Page, and hates to retire from it and stultify himself. The negotiations are being conducted by means of tedious long telegrams and by talks over the long-distance telephone. We keep the wires loaded. Dear me, dinner is ready, so Mrs. Rice says. With worlds of love, Samuel. Clemens and Oliver Wendell Holmes had met and become friends soon after the publication of Innocence Abroad in 1869. Now, twenty-five years later, we find a record of what, without doubt, was their last meeting. It occurred at the home of Mrs. James T. Field. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris, Boston, January 25, 94. Livy, darling, I am caught out worse this time than ever before in the matter of letters. Tuesday morning I was smart enough to finish and mail my long letter to you before breakfast, for I was suspecting that I would not have another spare moment during the day. It turned out just so. In a thoughtless moment, I agreed to come up here and read for the poor. I did not reflect that it would cost me three days. I could not get released. Yesterday I had myself called at eight and ran out to Mr. Rogers' house at nine and talked business until half-past ten, then caught eleven o'clock train and arrived here at six, was shaven and dressed by seven, and ready for dinner here in Mrs. Field's charming house. 
Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes never goes out now. He is in his 84th year, but he came out this time. Said he wanted to have a time once more with me. Mrs. Fields said Aldrich begged to come and went away crying because she wouldn't let him. She allowed only her family, Sarah Orne Jewett and sister, to be present because much company would overtax Dr. Holmes. Well, he was just delightful. He did as brilliant and beautiful talking and listening as ever he did in his life, I guess. Fields and Jewett said he hadn't been in such splendid form in years. He had ordered his carriage for nine. The coachman sent in for him at nine, but he said, Oh, nonsense! Leave glories and grandeurs like these? Tell him to go away and come in an hour. At ten he was called for again, and Mrs. Fields, getting uneasy, rose, but he wouldn't go, and so we rattled ahead the same as ever. Twice more Mrs. Fields rose, but he wouldn't go, and it didn't go till half-past ten, an unwarrantable dissipation for him in these days. He was prodigiously complimentary about some of my books, and his having Puddinhead read to him. I told him you and I used the autocrat as a courting book and marked it all through, and that you keep it in the sacred green box with the love letters, and it pleased him. Goodbye, my dear darling. It is fifteen minutes to dinner, and I'm not dressed yet. I have a reception tonight, and will be out very late at that place and at Irvin's Theatre, where I have a complimentary box. I wish you were all here. Samuel in the next letter we meet james j corbett gentleman jim as he was sometimes called the champion pugilist of that day the howells incident so amusingly dramatized will perhaps be more appreciated if the reader remembers that mark twain himself had at intervals been a mind-healing enthusiast indeed in spite of his strictures on mrs eddy his interest in the subject of mind cure continued to the end of his life to Mrs. Clemens in Paris, Sunday, 9.30 a.m. Livy, dear, when we got out to the house last night, Mrs. Rogers, who is up and around now, didn't want to go downstairs to dinner, but Mr. R. persuaded her, and we had a very good time indeed. By eight o'clock we were down again and bought a fifteen-dollar box in the Madison Square Garden. Rogers bought it, not I. Then he went and fetched Dr. Rice, while I went to the players and picked up two artists, Reed and Simmons, and thus we filled five of the six seats. There was a vast multitude of people in the brilliant place. Stanford White came along presently and invited me to go to the world champion's dressing room, which I was very glad to do. Corbett has a fine face and is modest and diffident, besides being the most perfectly and beautifully constructed human anima in the world. I said, You have whipped Mitchell, and maybe you will whip Jackson in June, but you are not done, then. You will have to tackle me. He answered so gravely that one might easily have thought him in earnest. No, I am not going to meet you in the ring. It is not fair or right to require it. You might chance to knock me out by no merit of your own, 
but by a purely accidental blow, and then my reputation would be gone and you would have a double one. You have got fame enough, and you ought not to want to take mine away from me. Corbett was for a long time a clerk in the Nevada Bank in San Francisco. There were lots of little boxing matches to entertain the crowd. Then at last Corbett appeared in the ring and the 8,000 people present went mad with enthusiasm. My two artists went mad about his form. They said they had never seen anything that came reasonably near equal in its perfection except Greek statues, and they didn't surpass it. Corbett boxed three rounds with the middleweight Australian champion. Oh, beautiful to see. Then the show was over, and we struggled out through a perfect wash of humanity. When we reached the street, I found I had left my arctics in the box. I had to have them, so Simmons said he would go back and get them, and I didn't dissuade him. I couldn't see how he was going to make his way a single yard into that solid oncoming wave of people, yet he must plow through it full fifty yards. He was back with the shoes in three minutes. How do you reckon he accomplished that miracle? By saying, Wade, gentlemen, please, coming to fetch Mr. Corbett's overshoes. The word flew from mouth to mouth. The Red Sea divided, and Simmons walked comfortably through and back, dry-shod. Simmons, this was revealed to me under seal of secrecy by Reed, is the hero of Gwen, and he and Gwen's Arthur were once engaged to marry. This is fire-escape Simmons, the inveterate talker, you know. Exit in case of Simmons. I had an engagement at a beautiful dwelling close to the players for 10.30. I was there by 10.45. Thirty cultivated and very musical ladies and gentlemen present, all of them acquaintances and many of them personal friends of mine. That wonderful Hungarian band was there. They charged $500 for an evening. Conversation and band until midnight then a bite of supper. Then the company was compactly grouped before me and I told about Dr. B. E. Martin and the Etchins, and followed it with the Scotch-Irish christening. My, but the Martin is a darling story. Next, the head tenor from the opera sang half a dozen great songs that set the company wild, yes, mad with delight, that nobly handsome young Damrosh accompanying on the piano. Just a little pause, then the band burst out into an explosion of weird and tremendous dance music. A Hungarian celebrity and his wife took the floor. I followed. I couldn't help it. The others drifted in, one by one, and it was on to Ora over again. By half-past four, I had danced all those people down, and yet was not tired, merely breathless. I was in bed at five and asleep in ten minutes, up at nine and presently at work on this letter to you. I think I wrote until two or half past, then I walked leisurely out to Mr. Rogers, it is called three miles but it is short of it, arriving at three thirty, but he was out, to return at five thirty, and a person was in whom I don't particularly like, so I didn't stay but dropped over and chatted with the houses until six. First, Howes and I had a chat together. 
I asked about Mrs. H. He said she was fine, still steadily improving, and nearly back to her old best health. I asked, as if I didn't know, What do you attribute this strange miracle to? Mind cure, simply mind cure. Lord, what a conversion! You were a scoffer three months ago. I? I wasn't. You were. You made a elaborate fun of me in this very room. I did not, Clemens. It's a lie, Howells, you did. I detailed to him the conversation of that time with the stately argument furnished by Boyson in the fact that a patient had actually been killed by a mind curist, and Howells' own smart remark that when the mind curist is done with you, you have to call in a regular at last because the former can't procure you a bearer permit. At last he gave in. He said he remembered that talk, but had now been a mind cure so long it was difficult for him to realize that he had ever been anything else. Mrs. H. came skipping in presently, the very person to a dot that she used to be so many years ago. Mrs. H. said, People may call it what they like, but it is just hypnotism and that's all it is, hypnotism pure and simple. Mind cure, the idea. Why, this woman that cured me hasn't got any mind. She's a good creature, but she's dull and dumb and illiterate and... Now, Eleanor, I know what I'm talking about. Don't I go there twice a week? And Mr. Clemens, if you could only see her wooden and satisfied face when she snubs me for forgetting myself and showing by a thoughtless remark that to me weather is still weather instead of being just an abstraction and a superstition. Oh, it's the funniest thing you ever saw. And when she tilts up her nose, well, it's, it's, well, it's that kind of a nose that, now, Eleanor. The woman is not responsible for her nose, and so on and so on. It didn't seem to me that I had any right to be having this feast and you not there. She convinced me before she got through that she and William James are right. Hypnotism and mind cure are the same thing. No difference between them. Very well. The very source, the very center of hypnotism is Paris. Dr. Charcot's pupils and disciples are right there and ready to your hand without fetching poor dear old Susie across the storm at sea. Let Mrs. Mackey, to whom I send my best respects, tell you whom to go to, to learn all you need to learn and how to proceed. Do do it, honey. Don't lose a minute. At eleven o'clock last night, Mr. Rogers said, I am able to feel physical fatigue and I feel it now. You never show any, either in your eyes or your movements. Do you ever feel any? I was able to say that I had forgotten what that feeling was like. Don't you remember how almost impossible it was for me to tire myself at the villa? Well, it is just so in New York. I go to bed unfatigued at three. I get up fresh and fine six hours later. I believe I have taken only one daylight nap since I have been here. When the anchor is down, then I shall say, Farewell, a long farewell,
to business. I will never touch it again. I will live in literature. I will wallow in it, revel in it. I will swim in it. Joan of Arc. But all this is premature. The anchor is not down yet. Tomorrow, Tuesday, I will add a P.S. if I have any to add, but whether or no, I must mail this tomorrow, for the mail steamer goes next day. 5.30 p.m. Great Scott, this is Tuesday. I must rush this letter into the mail instantly. Tell that sassy Ben I've got her welcome letter, and I'll write her as soon as I get a daylight chance. I've most time at night, but I'd rather write daytimes. Samuel the reed and simmons mentioned in the foregoing were robert reed and edward simmons distinguished painter the latter a brilliant fluent and industrious talker the title fire escape simmons which clemens gives him originated when oliver herford whose quaint wit has so long delighted new yorkers one day pinned up by the back door of the players the notice exit in case of simmons gwen a popular novel of that day was written by Blanche Willis Howard. Jamie Dodge, in the next letter, was the son of Mrs. Mary Mapes Dodge, editor of St. Nicholas. To Clara Clemens in Paris. Mr. Rogers' office, February 5, 94. Dear Benny, I was intending to answer your letter today, but I am away downtown and will simply whirl together a sentence or two for good fellowship. I have bought photographs of Coquelin and Jane Hating, and will ask them to sign them. I shall meet Coquelin tomorrow night, and if Hating is not present, I will send her picture to her by somebody. I am to breakfast with Madame Nordica in a few days, and meantime I hope to get a good picture of her to sign. She was of the breakfast company yesterday but the picture of herself which she signed and gave me does not do her majestic beauty justice. I am too busy to attend to the photo-collecting right, because I have to live up to the name which Jamie Dodge has given me, the Belle of New York, and it just keeps me rushing. Yesterday I had engagements to breakfast at noon, dine at three, and dine again at seven. I got away from the long breakfast at 2 p.m., went and excused myself from the 3 o'clock dinner, then lunched with Mrs. Dodge in 58th Street, returned to the players and dressed, dined out at 9, and was back at Mrs. Dodge's at 10 p.m., where we had magic lantern views of a superb sort and a lot of yawns until an hour after midnight, and got to bed at 2 this morning a good deal of a gain on my recent hours. But I don't get tired. I sleep as sound as a dead person, and always wake up fresh and strong, usually at exactly nine. I was at breakfast lately where people of seven separate nationalities sat, and the seven languages were going all the time. At my side sat a charming gentleman who was a delightful and active talker, and interesting. He talked glibly to those folks in all those seven languages, and still had a language to spare. I wanted to kill him, for very envy. I greet you with love and kisses. Papa.
to mrs clemens in paris february livy dear last night i played billiards with mr rogers until eleven then went to robert reed's studio and had a most delightful time until four this morning no ladies were invited this time among the people present were coquelin richard hardin davis harrison the great outdoor painter william h chase the artist bettini inventor of the new phonograph nikola tesla the worldwide illustrious electrician see article about him in january or february century john drew actor james bonds a marvelous mimic my you should see him smedley the artist zorn the artist zogbaum the artist reinhardt the artist metcalf the artist ancona head tenor at the opera oh a great lot of others everybody there had done something and was in his way famous somebody welcomed coquelin in a nice little french speech john drew did the like for me in english and then the fun began coquelin did some excellent french monologues one of them an ungrammatical englishman telling a colorless historiette in french it nearly killed the fifteen or twenty people who understood it i told a yawn and kona sang half a dozen songs bonds did his darling imitations hardin davis sang the hanging of danny diva which was of course good but he followed it with that most fascinating for what reason i don't know of all kipling's poems on the road to mandalay sang it tenderly and it searched me deeper and charmed me more than the diva young gerrit smith played some ravishing dance music and we all danced about an hour there couldn't be a pleasanter night than that one was some of those people complained of fatigue but i don't seem to know what the sense of fatigue is coquelin talks quite good english now he said i have a brother who has the fine mind ah a charming and delicate fancy and he knows your writings so well and loves them and that is the same with me it will stir him so when i write and tell him i've seen you wasn't that nice we talked a good deal together he is as winning as his own face but he wouldn't sign that photograph for clara that no nah. she shall have a better one i will send it to you he is much driven and will forget it but reed has promised to get the picture for me and i will try and keep him reminded oh dear my time is all used up and your letters are not answered mamma dear i don't go everywhere i decline most things but there are plenty that i can't well get out of i will remember what you say and not make my yawning too common i am so glad susie has gone on that trip and that you are trying the electric may you both prosper for you are mighty dear to me and in my thoughts always samuel the affairs of the webster publishing company were by this time getting into a very serious condition indeed the effects of the panic of the year before could not be overcome creditors were pressing their claims and profits were negligible 
In the following letter we get a Mark Twain estimate of the great financier who so cheerfully was willing to undertake the solving of Mark Twain's financial problems. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris. The Players, February 15, 94, 11.30 p.m. Livy, darling, yesterday I talked all my various matters over with Mr. Rogers, and we decided that it would be safe for me to leave here the 7th of March in the New York. So his private secretary, Miss Harrison, wrote and ordered a berth for me, and then I lost no time in cabling you that I should reach Southampton March 14th and Paris the 15th. Land, but it made my pulses leap to think I was going to see you again, one thing at a time. I never fully laid Webster's disastrous condition before Mr. Rogers until tonight after billiards. I did hate to burden his good heart and overworked head with it, but he took hold with avidity and said it was no burden to work for his friends, but a pleasure. We discussed it from various standpoints and found it a sufficiently difficult problem to solve, but he thinks that after he has slept upon it and thought it over he will know what to suggest. You must not think I am ever rude with Mr. Rogers. I am not. He is not common clay, but fine, fine and delicate, and that sort do not call out the coarsenesses that are in my sort. I am never afraid of wounding him. I do not need to watch myself in that matter. The sight of him is peace. He wants to go to Japan. It is his dream. Wants to go with me, which means the two families, and hear no more about business for a while, and have a rest. And he needs it. But it is like all the dreams of all busy men, fated to remain dreams. You perceive that he is a pleasant text for me. It is easy to write about him. When I arrived in September, Lord, how black the prospect was, how desperate, how incurably desperate. Webster and Company had to have a small sum of money or go under at once. I flew to Hartford to my friends, but they were not moved, not strongly interested, and I was ashamed that I went. It was from Mr. Rogers, a stranger, that I got the money, and was by it saved. And then, while still a stranger, he set himself the task of saving my financial life without putting upon me, in his native delicacy, in his sense that I was the recipient of a charity, a benevolence. And he has accomplished that task, accomplished it at a cost of three months of wearing and difficult labor. He gave that time to me, time which could not be bought by any man at a hundred thousand dollars a month no nor for three times the money well in the midst of that great fight that long and admirable fight george warner came to me and said there is a splendid chance open to you i know a man a prominent man who has written a book that will go like wildfire a book that arraigns the standard oil fiends and gives them unmitigated hell, individual by individual. It is the very book for you to publish. There is a fortune in it, and I can put you in communication with the author. I wanted to say, the only man I care for in the world, the only man I would give a damn for, 
the only man who is lavishing his sweat and blood to save me and mine from starvation and shame is a standard oil fiend if you know me you know whether i want the book or not but i didn't say that i said i didn't want any book i wanted to get out of the publishing business and out of all business and was here for that purpose and would accomplish it if i could but there's enough i shall be asleep by three and i don't need much sleep because i'm never drowsy or tired these days dear dear susie my strength reproaches me when i think of her and you my darling samuel but even so able a man as henry rogers could not accomplish the impossible the affairs of the webster company were hopeless the business was not worth saving by mr rogers advice an assignment was made april eighteen eighteen ninety four after its early spectacular success less than ten years had brought the business to failure the publication of the grant memoirs had been its only great achievement clemens would seem to have believed that the business would resume and for a time rogers appears to have comforted him in his hope but we cannot believe that it long survived young hall who had made such a struggle for its salvation was eager to go on but he must presently have seen the futility of any effort in that direction of course the failure of mark twain's firm made a great stir in the country and it is easy to understand that loyal friends would rally in his behalf to mrs clemens in paris april twenty two ninety four dear old darling we all think the creditors are going to allow us to resume business and if they do we shall pull through and pay the debts i am prodigiously glad we made an assignment and also glad that we did not make it sooner earlier we should have made a poor showing but now we shall make a good one i meet flocks of people and they all shake me cordially by the hand and say i was so sorry to hear of the assignment but so glad you did it it was around this long time that the concern was tottering and all your friends were afraid you would delay the assignment too long john mackey called yesterday and said don't let it disturb you sam we all have to do it at one time or another it's nothing to be ashamed of one stranger out in new york state sent me a dollar bill and thought he would like to get up a dollar subscription for me and Poultney Bigelow's note came promptly with his check for a thousand dollars. I had been meeting him every day at the club and liking him better and better all the time. I couldn't take his money, of course, but I thanked him cordially for his good will. Now and then a good and dear Joe Twitchell or Susie Warner condoles with me and says, Cheer up, don't be downhearted. And some other friend says, I am glad and surprised to see how cheerful you are and how bravely you stand it. And none of them suspect what a burden has been lifted from me and how blithe I am inside. Except when I think of you, dear heart, then I am not blithe, for I seem to see you grieving and ashamed and dreading to look people in the face, for in the thick of the fight there is cheer but you are far away and cannot hear the drums nor see the wheeling squadrons. You only seem to see rout, retreat, 
and dishonored colors dragging in the dirt, whereas none of these things exist. There is temporary defeat, but no dishonor, and we will march again. Charlie Warner said today, Show, Livy isn't worrying. So long as she's got you and the children, she doesn't care what happens. She knows it isn't her affair. Which didn't convince me. Goodbye, my darling. I love you and all of the kids, and you can tell Clara I am not a spitting gray kitten. Samuel. Clemens sailed for Europe as soon as his affairs would permit him to go. He must get settled where he could work comfortably. Typesetter prospects seemed promising, but meantime there was need of funds. He began writing on the ship, as was his habit, and had completed his article on Fenimore Cooper by the time he reached London. In August we find him writing to Mr. Rogers from Etretat, a little Norman watering place. To H. H. Rogers in New York, Etretat, Normandy, Chalet de Brise, August 25, 94. Dear Mr. Rogers, I find the madam ever so much better in health and strength. The air is superb and soothing and wholesome, and the chalet is remote from noise and people and just the place to ride in. I shall begin work this afternoon. Mrs. Clemens is in great spirits on account of the benefit which she has received from the electrical treatment in Paris and is bound to take it up again and continue it all the winter and of course i am perfectly willing she requires me to drop the lecture platform out of my mind and go straight ahead with joan until the book is finished if i should have to go home for even a week she means to go with me won't consent to be separated again but she hopes i won't need to go i tell her all right i won't go unless you send and then i must she keeps the accounts, and as she ciphers it, we can't get crowded for money for eight months yet. I didn't know that, but I don't know much anyway. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. The reader may remember that Clemens had written the first half of his Joan of Arc book at the Villa Viviani in Florence nearly two years before. He had closed the manuscript then with The Taking of Orleans, and was by no means sure that he would continue the story beyond that point. Now, however, he was determined to reach the tale's tragic conclusion. To H. H. Rogers in New York, Etretat, Sunday, September 9, 94. Dear Mr. Rogers, I drove the quill too hard, and I broke down, in my head. It has now been three days since I laid up. When I wrote you a week ago, I had added 10,000 words, or thereabout, to Joan. Next day, I added 1,500, which was a proper enough day's work, though not a full one. But during Tuesday and Wednesday, I stacked up an aggregate of 6,000 words, and that was a very large mistake. My head hasn't been worth a cent since. However, there's a compensation for in those two days i reached and passed successfully a point which i was solicitous about before i ever began the book viz the battle of patay 
because that would naturally be the next to the last chapter of a work consisting of either two books or one. In the one case one goes right along from that point, as I shall do now. In the other he would add a wind-up chapter and make the book consist of Jones' childhood and military career alone. I shall resume work today, and hereafter I will not go at such an intemperate rate. My head is pretty cobwebby yet. I am hoping that along about this time I shall hear that the machine is beginning its test in the Herald office. I shall be very glad indeed to know the result of it. I wish I could be there. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. Rouen, where Joan met her martyrdom, was only a short distance away, and they halted there en route to Paris, where they had arranged to spend the winter. The health of Susie Clemens was not good, and they lingered in Rouen while Clemens explored the old city and incidentally did some writing of another sort. In a note to Mr. Rogers he said, To put in my odd time, I am writing some articles about Paul Bourget and his Outremer chapters, laughing at them, and at some of our oracular owls who find them important. What the hell makes them important, I should like to know. He was still at Rouen two weeks later, and had received encouraging news from Rogers concerning the typesetter which had been placed for trial in the office of the Chicago Herald. Clemens wrote, I can hardly keep from sending a hurrah by cable. I would certainly do it if I wasn't superstitious. His restraint, though wise, was wasted. The end was near. To H. H. Rogers in New York, 169 Rue de la Université, Paris, December 22, 94. Dear Mr. Rogers, I seem to be entirely expecting your letter, and also prepared and resigned. But, Lord, it shows how little we know ourselves, and how easily we can deceive ourselves. It hit me like a thunderclap. It knocked every rag of sense out of my head, and I went flying here and there and yonder, not knowing what I was doing, and only one clearly defined thought standing up visible and substantial out of the crazy storm-drift that my dream of ten years was in desperate peril, and out of the sixty thousand or ninety thousand projects for its rescue that came floating through my skull, not one would hold still long enough for me to examine it and size it up. Have you ever been like that? Not so much so, I reckon. There was another clearly defined idea, I must be there and see it die. That is, if it must die, and maybe if I were there we might hatch up some next to impossible way to make it take up its bed and take a walk. So at the end of four hours I started, still whirling and walking over to the Rue Scribe, 4 p.m., and asked a question or two and was told I should be running a big risk if I took the 9 p.m. train for London and Southampton. Better come right along at 6.52 per Havre special and step aboard the New York all easy and comfortable. Very, and I about two miles from home, with no packing done. 
then it occurred to me that none of these salvation notions that were whirlwinding through my head could be examined or made available unless at least a month's time could be secured so i cabled you and said to myself that i would take the french steamer tomorrow which will be sunday by bedtime mrs clemens had reasoned me into a fairly rational and contented state of mind but of course it didn't last long so i went on thinking mixing it with a smoke in the dressing-room once an hour until dawn this morning result a sane resolution no matter what your answer to my cable might be i would hold still and not sail until i should get an answer to this present letter which i am now writing or a cable answer from you saying come or remain i have slept six hours my pond has clarified and i find the sediment of my seventy thousand projects to be of this character several pages of suggestions for reconstructing the machine follow don't say i'm wild for really i'm sane again this morning i am going right along with joan now and wait untroubled till i hear from you if you think i can be of the least use cable me come i can write joan on board ship and lose no time also i could discuss my plan with the publisher for deluxe joan time being an object for some of the pictures could be made over here cheaply and quickly but would cost much time and money in america if the meeting should decide to quit business january four i'd like to have stoker stop from paying in any more money if miss harrison doesn't mind that disagreeable job and i'll have to ride them too of course with love s l clemens the stoker of this letter was brahm stoker long associated with sir henry irving irving himself had also taken stock in the machine the address one sixty nine rue de la universite whence these letters are written was the beautiful studio home of the artist pomeroy which they had taken for the winter to h h rogers in new york one six nine rue de la universite paris december twenty seven ninety four dear mr rogers notwithstanding your heart is old and hard you make a body choke up i know you mean every word you say and i do take it in the same spirit in which you tender it i shall keep your regard while we two live that i know for i shall always remember what you have done for me and that will insure me against ever doing anything that could forfeit it or impair it i am fifty-nine years old yet i never had a friend before who put out a hand and tried to pull me ashore when it found me in deep waters it is six days or seven days ago that i lived through that despairing day and then through a night without sleep then settled down next day into my right mind or thereabouts and wrote you i put in the rest of that day till seven p m plenty comfortably enough writing a long chapter of my book then went to a masked ball blacked up as uncle remus taking clara along and we had a good time i have lost no day since and suffered no discomfort to speak of 
but drove my troubles out of my mind and had good success in keeping them out through watchfulness i have done a good week's work and put the book a good way ahead in the great trial which is the difficult part which requires the most thought and carefulness i cannot see the end of the trial yet but i am on the road i am creeping surely toward it why not leave them all to me my business brothers i take you all by the hand i jump at the chance i ought to be ashamed and i'm trying my best to be ashamed and yet i do jump at the chance in spite of it i don't want to write irving and i don't want to write stoker it doesn't seem as if i could but i can suggest something for you to write them and then if you see that i am unwise you can write them something quite different now this is my idea one to return stoker's one hundred dollars to him and keep his stock two and tell irvin that when luck turns with me i will make good to him what the salvage from the dead company fails to pay him of his five hundred dollars p s madam says no i must face the music so i enclose my effort to be used if you approve but not otherwise there now if you will alter it to suit your judgment and bang away i shall be eternally obliged we shall try to find a tenant for our hartford house not an easy matter for it costs heavily to live in we can never live in it again though it would break the family's hearts if they could believe it nothing daunts mrs clemens or makes the world look black to her which is the reason i haven't drowned myself we all send our deepest and warmest greetings to you and all of yours and a happy new year s l clemens enclosure my dear stoker i am not dating this because it is not to be mailed at present when it reaches you it will mean that there is a hitch in my machine enterprise a hitch so serious as to make it take to itself the aspect of a dissolved dream this letter then will contain check for the one hundred dollars which you have paid and will you tell irvin for me i can't get up courage enough to talk about this misfortune myself except to you whom by good luck i haven't damaged yet that when the wreckage presently floats ashore he will get a good deal of his five hundred dollars back and a dab at a time i will make up to him the rest i'm not feeling as fine as i was when i saw you there in your home please remember me kindly to mrs stoker i gave up that london lecture project entirely had to there's never been a chance since to find the time sincerely yours s l clemens end of section thirty six recording by james k white chula vista